getting going, so turn on the clock. Let's go. Um, interesting thing, cool thing happened on the way to this sermon. <laughs> right? <laughs> so what happens is, is that probably six weeks ago, I got this thought that seemed like it was from the Lord. I think it was, and it was for all kinds of things. But I was wondering if maybe he wouldn't have me say it in a sermon. So I started thinking about it, and I started praying about it and everything else. And I was looking at one weekend coming up with Amy. And what I saw was, is, boy, this would be the perfect sermon to really get people over the hump if they were still thinking about whether or not to come, to get them to actually come. And so, and it was about, it was, it was, it had some political elements, but really it was about division and, and the way that we're, you know, just fracturing and so on. And it was just about a, a way of thinking about all of that kind of stuff that would help us get to this more transcendent, unifying place. So that's what I had in my mind. I get to Monday. It's time to really pray about, is that what he wants for this week? And it's not a full sermon. And I know that it's not a full sermon, and I'm a little bit like not, you know, it's just kind of moving around in me and so on, and I'm trying to figure out what's the, what's the bigger pie, what's the bigger piece and so on, and I go to read the next section in Empowered, which we've not been in since um, actually November, and because we've been doing, you know, we did Christmas and then we did prayer and so on, and I read the next section in Empowered, and the first thought, this is true now, the first thought that I had is, is I never want to preach this passage, <laughs> ever. It is dark it is dismal, it is disturbing, it is tough. And I'm like, I don't even want to preach it ever, and I don't see how it fits with this other thing at all. And so I start going back to trying to figure out what he would have me do in this. But as I'm taking it day by day and praying about it, this thing is happening. And it's, of course, that this passage keeps creeping back into my mind. It keeps creeping back into my heart where he's causing me to, what about this? What am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to do, what it, what is this? Why did you do that? Why did you say that? Because this is tough. And the more that I thought about it, the more I started seeing, oh my gosh, there's something in this that is incredible. One of those things, right? Where you have to dig deep to find the treasure that's in that field. And once you find it, you've got the riches. And so I'm, I'm thinking that way. And by the time I go out on Thursday morning, the Lord says, forget about that other thing whatsoever. I want to do something specific with the congregation this Sunday. And the thing I want to do is, I felt that he wanted every person to experience a huge, genuine, soul-cleansing, soul-comforting, ah, sigh of relief. Now, I want to say something about that. I recognize that some people in here are going through really tough times, and when you hear that, you immediately bear witness to it. Other people in here are doing okay. Life is okay right now. It's not overly stressful relatively and so on. And so you're like, I, that's not really where I am. But I want you to think about something for a second in order to bring it home to everybody here. I want you to contrast what our life has become versus what God meant it to be. Here's what he meant it to be. The garden. Which is what? What, what, what did you do in the garden? There were no weeds, so you didn't have to do any weeding. The fruit that you were eating and sustaining you was growing and you were just picking it. Maybe you had to do a little bit of pruning. What did you do? What was the primary thing about the garden? Spending time with him and with each other. It was a relational thing. And, it, and there wasn't fractured relationships. 
So it was a thing of love. It was a thing of, of surpassing love all the time. Now that's what he intended. What have our lives become? I want you to always remember a thought about life. And that is that God made people phenomenally adaptable. What does that mean? It means we are the lobster in the pot. God can turn up the temperature two degrees, and initially that is incredibly uncomfortable to us. But we have this unbelievable resilience for living in situations that would have previously been unthinkable. But you can get to them step by step because you can just adjust, adjust, adapt, adapt, and you'll get to where you're actually okay there. You're thinking that's normal and what it should be. I want you to think right now about the jobs that most of us have here. Most of us have a job which is demanding of our time and energy way more than what is healthy for us to be giving. Right? Most of us, not all, but most of us living in this particular neck of the woods are experiencing significant, if not severe, economic distress, financial concern, pressure, stress. Most of us, in fact, I would say all of us, are experiencing at least one relationship in our life that is very important to us that is going difficultly. That may be an actual confrontation with someone, or it could be like I'm having with my mother right now as she's declining mentally. And this is a thing that's causing a lot of concern and stress and what am I supposed to do and how do I do it? It's adding a whole other thing to my plate, right? And here's what I want us to see, because I could go through, I could keep going on this, and I could find hundreds of different ways in which we have become accustomed to a level of stress, to a level of burden that is completely the opposite of what God intended in the garden. And yet we think of it as life. And it is life in a fallen world. But that's not what God intended. And so the fact of the matter is, is that what I want us to do is, when I say that God wants to bring us a soul-cleansing, soul-comforting, ah, I don't want us to just think about the things that are immediately popped to mind. I want us to think about what our lives have become that is distinct from different than what he intended life to be. Joy and fun. We just celebrated Julie's birthday right here. Here's one thing about Julie, and if you understand this thing about Julie, you will always know Julie well. Now, there's more to it than just this, but here's the truth about Julie. Girls just want to have fun. <laughs> now, here's what I want to tell you. That's a godly thing. Okay? So, we're not there. There's something else there. Something else happening. And what I want us to do today is I want us to experience this release. Ah, oh, this, oh. I want us to literally settle down to a different, deeper place in God that makes you just go, oh, okay. I don't have to do all that other to maintain. See it? So if you like that, then you're going to want to pay attention. John Badaman is our prayer. John is one of our elders. John is a towering man of God. He's not just a towering physical specimen. 
He is, he is as strong in the spirit, he is as strong in the things of the Lord as he is in more so than any other part of his life. And that makes him the perfect person to pray for this time when God is wanting us to see this larger, bigger, deeper, restful thing. So, John, thank you. Gracious Heavenly Father, I know that uh, I can say, yep, that's me to everything that Kurt just said. And uh, I know deep in my soul how much I long, Father, how much we long to just know you and to be able to lean into you and rest in you and trust that whatever it is that you have us doing, have us to do, that you have us completely. We just don't understand it because of the noisy, busy, fractured world that we live in. Father, help us to just lean into you. Help us to uh, be at peace in our soul with you in whatever way that you want to use us. And I'm, we know that that's always more than what we can imagine. And we need desperately to hear your still small voice. We need to hear your still small voice loudly, Father. Pierce through the noise and the clutter of this world. Amen. So we lay our hearts before you, Father. And, uh, and we, we just bow our hearts before you and pray, do with us, Lord, as you would. We are your people, and we love you, and we thank you for that love, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, John. Now, I'm going to read to you this disturbing passage, and I'm just going to read it through so you see the whole thing, and then we're going to go back and deconstruct it. But in order to get the thing that you have to get out of it, in order for it to do the thing that it needs to do in you, we have to do that thing where we put ourselves in their shoes. So the first thing you have to do is you have to get rid of that you know what happens next. We are now within 48 hours of Jesus being crucified, but also resurrecting in the new kingdom and what all of this means and what all of it meant. So you have to get rid of all of that knowledge right now. Literally, just take your mind and wipe all that stuff clean so that you become a disciple who is experiencing Jesus saying these words and you do not know what is coming. Okay? You do not know how the story ends. So you're hearing words. But now you got to do one other thing. you got to put on where they were. And here's where they were. They were not thinking anything bad was going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. They were thinking the opposite. They were thinking he may find some resistance and so on. But remember, what they're thinking is, is this guy's the Messiah, the one who is going to deliver us from the Romans, the one who's going to set us free. He may go into Jerusalem and experience some resistance and have to overcome some of the powers that be, but the people will see, the light will go on, the people will come behind him, he will rise up, and he will become the guy who sets us free from the hated Romans. So now when these guys are thinking this, what they're thinking is, good stuff's going to come. See? Now, not only good stuff, but now, do you remember James and John were fighting at one point in time over who got to seat at the right hand of, the, of Jesus when he was in his reign? So there's a little bit, too, of not only is it going to go well, but we're important to this. I don't think that's the reason why anybody ever followed Jesus, because they were expecting to get a good seat at the table, because it was way too hard in order to do that. But the bottom line is, is there is in the back of their minds this little thing about how it might go for me, too right? As a lot of things are happening that they don't understand. So with that in mind, you're feeling pretty good about things. You're thinking things are going to go a certain way, blah, blah, blah. 
Now, here we go. Now, here's what happens. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the wall. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. That's a pretty striking statement to be making. But then, so they go, well, what does that mean? When will this happen? Show us what's the sign going to be these things are about to take place. He said, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and saying the time has come, but don't believe them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes. There'll be famines, plagues in many lands. Is this what they'd signed up for? We're starting to get beyond, right? We're starting to go, all right? So, and there will be a there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. Okay, now right there they're going, what is he talking about? What does this mean? But now watch. But before all this occurs, there'll be a time of great persecution. You <laughs> will be dragged into synagogues and prisons and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you're my followers. Say what? Huh? I... Messiah, victory. Huh. Oh, I get it. Okay, I got it. Yeah, it's going to work out fine because this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you. I'm breathing easier now. For I'll give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. That sounds like what I want to hear, right? Even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. In fact, they'll even kill some of you. Excuse me? <laughs> Question? Everyone will hate you because you're my followers. I thought everybody was going to see the light. But not a hair on your head will perish. Standing firm, endurance. By standing firm, endurance, you will win your souls. We're in the middle of the playoffs. This is the worst halftime speech by a coach in the history of the NFL. Okay? The first half has gone fairly well. Lots of miracles out there in the hinterland. Now we're coming home. It's time to win the game. And he comes in and says, you're not only going to lose, you're going to get killed. Terrible halftime speech. Just terrible, right? So why did Jesus say it? Was he just meaning to shock him? Did he just mean to blow him out of the water? Why, why? Always remember something. Whenever you're asking a question of the Lord, always keep one thing in mind. God's always doing something good. If your conclusion doesn't lead you to a deeper understanding, a revelation, an aha moment of the goodness of God, then you're interpreting it wrongly, period. That's just a, that's what we call a hermeneutic, which is a way of interpreting something. And you need to come at it with that. Because when you do, all of a sudden you'll start to see something in an otherwise extremely difficult passage. And let me start it this way. Is it better to warn a person or to not warn a person? Let's say that I know for absolute certain 
that you are going to have something. Oh, no, I don't want to point at anybody. God, that'd just be terrible. <laughs> let's, say, let's say that we know that something terrible is going to happen to this invisible, imaginary person. We know that they are going to even die. Do you tell them? Because I'm telling you right now, initially, why? They're doing okay. Let them enjoy the last days that they've got, right? Initially, the response is don't warn a person. If, it's just, if there's nothing they can do about it, why warn them? We have this debate all the time in genetic testing and so on, right? Do you want to know? Well, no. But it's not the initial thing that Jesus was concerned about. It was what would happen when they were in the middle of the trial. Because I'll tell you right now, when you're in the middle of a trial, when you're in the middle of something devastating, when you're in the middle of something that is killing you and you don't know why, and you have no idea why, what happens is it begins to wear on your soul. And I have had these things happen, as have many people in this place, if not most, if not all. And when it's wearing on you, if you have no word from the Lord, if you have no assurance, if you have no thing that is in your heart that you can hold on to, it begins to wear on you to the point that you begin to lose heart. It begins to sap your strength. And in fact, you get to the place to where you will lose your hope. And then what? What choices will you make? I guess I got it all wrong. I guess there is no God. I guess I need to fend for myself. Whatever it is. See what I mean? I should do what these people are telling me to do before they kill me. On the other hand, what happens if you go to somebody, and yeah, you do upset them initially, but you tell them something's going to happen that's going to be incredibly difficult. It may even lead to your death. Now, when you're going through something that's incredibly difficult, you remember that somebody told you that this was going to happen. And if somebody's telling you that this is going to happen, what does that mean? There's a bigger picture. It's not for nothing. He's in control. And so it's going to something. It's going to become something. And I need to hang in. It may be tough, but he's told me that it was going to happen because he was trying to comfort me. You see it? He was trying to give me comfort in the day that I would need the comfort. Initially disquieting. Ultimately, okay. You see it? Now that's the principle. Watch how it plays out. Some of his disciples again talking about the majestic stonework of the temple, da-da-da, time is coming when these things won't stand. What happens in the mind of people that are hearing that in first century Jerusalem? What do they think of? What's the first thing they think of? Anybody? Yeah. This has happened before. Solomon built the original temple. God himself resided in it in a cloud of glory in such a way that the priest couldn't even stand to minister. But then the people continually rejected God, and God warned him and 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 warned him about everything, and then finally nobody repented, and so he did it. And the temple was completely destroyed, and the people were virtually wiped out. The people that were left were pretty much the heads and the, the big important people, and they were ported off to Babylon, and there were just a few people left to tend the fields so that they could pay taxes to Babylon, pay the money, not taxes, pay the resource. They, Babylon owned it. There was no Jerusalem. There was no Israel. There was no nothing. So it's happened before. Now, 
I need to skip forward for just one second. I need to pop out of our story. I need to skip forward for a second. You do realize that what happens with this temple is as exactly as Jesus said. Because what happens is he's speaking in about 33 AD. And in 37 years, which is three years short of a generation, because this will come upon this generation, three years short of this generation, the Romans are going to surround Jerusalem, it actually happens a little bit before 40, but it ends in 40. But this generation will be, one, one, over one million Jewish people will be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And by the time the Romans are done with their siege, which will be years later, there'll only be 90,000 left alive. And they won't die because the Romans are killing them. They'll die because they're starving to death and killing anybody who wants to escape because they're traitors going over to the Romans. And this is the time that God is going to deliver us from the Romans. Put that in your head. Put that in your mind. They're thinking God is going to deliver them. And so they kill people that are trying to escape the starvation. That's why they're all dying. This is tough stuff, right? So if you're that person, and by the way, the temple comes down, and to this day the only thing that's left is the Wailing Wall. Right? So here we are. Okay? Now, the disciples, the disciples hear this, and what do they think to themselves? This has happened before. We understand that he's Messiah. Maybe this is something that has to happen. But you're not despairing right now. You know that this is a serious thing. The temple is where God lives. If the temple's coming down, that means a big deal. Right? So naturally, they're going to be curious about what's going to happen. When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? What's going to be the sign that it's happening? How do we know when we're entering into it? Tell us. Because we have a long history of God telling people things, and it takes so long for it to actually happen that sometimes it's way past a lifetime, and people aren't quite sure. But it does, in fact, always happen. But having said that, teacher, they asked, when will this happen? What sign will you show us? What things are about to take place? He said, don't let anyone mislead you, i.e., don't be deceived. Now, right there, here's what he's saying. What you're thinking is going to happen is wrong. You have an expectation. I'm telling you, it's wrong. And you're going to need to adjust. You're going to need to get it right, or you're going to get picked off. Many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah, saying the time has come. Don't believe them when you hear wars. How bad does it happen for people to go to a Messiah? When things are comfortable, like right now, Messiah shows up in Bellevue. What does everybody say? I'm happy. I'm good. Chill out. What happens if there's devastation happening? People run for someone to save them. People run. In fact, the Antichrist will come because the world will be in such devastation that it is looking for anybody that can bring peace. He will promise peace, and in fact, he will deliver peace of a kind. You see it? So right here he's saying, this is a big deal. There's going to be false messiahs. When you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. These things must take place first. In fact, the end won't follow immediately. Now, I just want you to think about that for a second. When did they think Jesus the Messiah is going to overcome the Romans and ascend? When did they think that's going to happen? 
pretty soon, within our lifetimes. We're part of it. We're willing to take up a sword and fight and do whatever we, it takes. You see what I'm saying? They're not thinking that this is going to take 2,000 years. They don't have that in their minds at all. This is not going to happen now. Watch this. Anybody who's ever been in a really trying circumstance, which is all of us at some point in our lives, would it have been oddly comforting to know that it was going to be a long time, maybe even not in your lifetime? Maybe it wouldn't even resolve until after you'd already passed? See, initially finding out that you're about to go into a really terrible situation for the rest of your life sucks. <laughs> right? It sucks the big one. It's huge. This is bad. But when you're in the middle of your life sucking like that, if you've been told that it's going to last a long time, here's what you do. You don't keep thinking it's going to end tomorrow. Having been in a situation that was soul-sucking and hoping that it would end every single day, the key to it was that that itself will drain you of hope. Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. And you'll just get sick. This is never ending and you'll finally give up hope. Let me just say something, okay? As Christians, we have this little thing that we do. And it's totally true, but we use it in a way that hurts us. When God is doing something, he's always in control, and the nature of the thing that he's doing is always, in essence, a kind of test. But when we say test, what we mean is, all I've got to do is write it out until the test is over, and then I'll be free again. And here's what the problem. A test that is going to change you has to last long enough for you to give up hope <laughs> that it's just a test, <laughs> that it's going to change tomorrow. Because things don't change unless you've gotten to the place to where you start owning them as really what your life is now going to be. I remember vividly to this day doing a job that I hated. I won't say what it is. I've talked about it before. But I'm just going to tell you a job that I absolutely hated. And the day that I got set free was the day that I was going into that work. And I said, if this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, I'm okay. I can do it. There's people there that I love. I can take this job in a new way. See, because before that I was taking it as, I just have to put up with it. But I changed it too. This is what I'm going to do. So I'm going to find you in it. And there's this person that loves you. And he and I can work with these people that don't love you. <laughs> that really are very much against you. And we can start being a witness. And we can start. And I love these people. I've come to love them. I've come to see how broken they are. And I can start doing something that's going to make a difference in their lives. You see it? And I'm just telling you. All I can tell you is, at that moment in time when I said that, I thought that that was going to be the rest of my life. I had no it never even entered my imagination at that point in time that three months later I'd be out of that job and, about, and three months after that I'd be in the pulpit. No thought of that whatsoever. The thing about a test is you have to understand it as your life 
Life is what happens when you're busy planning on doing other things. Get involved. Take the moment. Own the moment. Let God do the work that he's going to do. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes. There'll be great famines, plagues in many lands. We were thinking this is Roman Israel. But all of a sudden, you're talking to me about, this is like worldwide stuff. Plagues in many lands, nation against nation, all of this stuff happening. This is like the whole world. That wasn't my perspective. And terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. This is all much larger than what we were thinking as disciples. But before all this occurs, there'll be a time of great persecution. You'll be dragged into synagogues and prison, and you'll stand trial before kings and governors. If God is trying to teach us something we do not know, it goes without saying that he most likely has to take us to some place that we did not think could happen. Do you see it? That could never happen. In my situation, literally the job that I was doing, and I don't say it because I'm embarrassed about it. And I, there's probably people here that are in that profession, and it's an honorable profession. But the bottom line was, is when I thought about what's the worst that could ever happen to me, it was being a garbage man. And I've said that, and there's probably a garbage person that's going to listen to this guy that collects trash. And I just want to say, you know what I do? This is absolutely true, because on, on Thursday morning, there's trash trucks that are on my walk. I always wave and smile. Because thank God for these people. Right? But I was so immature and I was so stupid and I was so idiotic that I always thought, well, the worst thing would be to collect trash, to be a garbage man. Right? Because the job that I ended up doing was so much further below that that it never occurred to me that that was possible. In my mind, it was below that. It's not. But you get the drift? None's, none's above one another at all. They're just jobs. They're just opportunities. They're just things, right? But you catch a drift. See where we're going here? Okay. I think everybody's getting it. So let me just, because you are my followers, all of a sudden, see, this is, remember when we read it the first time, this is the first time that hope starts coming into there, a bigger picture starts coming into there. He's telling us all kinds of bad things are going to happen, but now all of a sudden he's starting to tell us, but there's a reason for it. In fact, he goes on to say, but this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. Oh, I get it. This is how I'm going to witness. You're going to deliver me and I'm going to witness. Don't worry in advance about how to answer the charge against you. I'll give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. This is the heart of this passage, isn't it? This is the point. He's going after, there is a bigger picture. I'm doing a bigger thing, and I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. So now let me ask you a question. If you're somebody who's resisting what God is doing with you because it's outside of your ability to have conceived of it happening, you didn't think that that could ever happen. If this is outside of that possibility, if you don't know him nor trust him, can you enter into this? Do you see it? You can't. You can't enter into God's bigger purposes. Why? Because you're freaking out. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're trying to plan out what to say. You're going after all the things that you could do, and how can I get out of this? And what am I, And maybe I'll just compromise. I'll tell them whatever they want to hear so I can get out of this being pulled apart by horses thing. Do you see it? 
If you don't know him nor trust him, can you enter into him being able to use you as a witness? No. <laughs> you're witnessing something, how freaked out you are. <laughs> but you're not witnessing him. So here's the point. Now this is just, you know, this is the thing, right? This thing that God is trying to communicate to the disciples to give them comfort in the middle of incredibly difficult times. The comfort is there for every single person at every single moment, always. The issue is whether or not you're going to appropriate it. Are you going to live in the comfort or are you going to live in the fear? If you live in the fear, you don't live in the comfort. <laughs> and you don't witness. In fact, let me just take this, watch this here. Okay, here, when God tells us about what will happen before it happens, he reveals himself to be, I am. Come up here. Thank you. I'm sorry, I should have told you. Okay, now just, thank you. Just stand right there. Now watch. Here's what I am means. This is the best definition of what I am is. That's Yahweh, which is, we, we put the vowel points in it because we want to say it, Yahweh. Okay, that's what his name actually is, I am. And here's the way to understand what the word, what the name I am means. This is your past, and that is your future, and here's your present. Here's where God is, in your past, right? Here's where God also is, in your future, right? But you know what? To have God in our past and in our future doesn't really comfort us today. So here's the definition for I am. I am, right here, right now. Every moment, every moment that has passed, every moment that will come, I am right here with you. Every single moment. Love you. When, because we know these things about God that he tells a thing before it happens, that he does things with us, that he helps us to enter into things, by the way, a little sidebar. Somebody will say, I went through a very devastating thing and God did not tell me. God did not tell me that it was coming, nor did he tell me how long it was going to last. Now, I want to say, that happens. God is good and he does what he does in the ways that he does them because it's the best for you. That's just the way it is. That's the truth. But I do want to say something. To a degree, are we like the disciples where God does in fact tell us that he's going to die on the cross and that you're going to go through tribulation and how long it's going to last even. But we don't hear it because we don't hear it. <laughs> I can tell you in my situation, when I finally got done years later, a decade later, that's how long mine went on, and in some aspects, 20 plus years. But when I got done with my situation, I could look back and as clear as day, I could see when he told me everything. Now, when I was in the middle of it, I had no idea. <laughs> no clue. But when I got done and I looked back, I went, oh, you tried. You know what? You're like the disciples. You're in good company. I'd rather be in better company. Let me just take it to another level here. 
ways in which we are as witnesses, three ways. Here's the first way, what we say. That's what he just said. Don't worry about what you're going to say on the day that you're going to say it. I'll tell you what to say. Now, now here's what that means, right? The first way that we witness is we tell people about things, right? But can I make something clear to you? He didn't say, you tell them what you think. He said, you tell them what I tell you to tell them. <laughs> there is this thing in evangelism, which is, I think, really helpful and a really good thing. And here's what it is. Learn your testimony. Think about the story of your testimony about how God saved you and rehearse it. Get to where you can tell it. And the reason why that's a really wonderful thing to do is because you get good at telling your story. Most people don't know how to tell a story. But let me tell you something. Please don't ever inflict upon somebody your canned story of your salvation. Instead, having practiced what your story is, know that there are a hundred points of light in there that God could put the emphasis on. And he will put the emphasis on it if you'll let him tell the story through you in the way that he wants to tell it. See it? It's not what you have to say to people. Nobody needs to know what you have to say. Period. They need what he has to say. So that's one way that we witness. We tell. Here's another way. How we handle whatever happens to us. The sky is falling! <laughs> what does that communicate? No hope, no God, no nothing. That communicates a person in the world going, you know, there's nothing out there. It's existential. There's no hope. Just give up. Right? How do we handle what happens to us? Here's the truth. Of the 12 disciples, 11 of them die a death, all but John. 11 of them die a death that is so remarkable in how they die that to this day, their stories are told in the countries in which they died and because it brought the countries to the Lord. This is going from India to Spain and all throughout the Middle East. These people died in ways that were so remarkable. Peter's saying, I don't want to die on the cross like my Savior did. I'm not worthy of it, so hang me upside down. Essentially, it was, on the, it was like this. The point is, is these people weren't thinking about themselves. Christians were being eaten by lions singing hymns. Christians were burning alive, thanking God. When somebody sees something like that, as did Paul, it makes a difference. <laughs> Why do these Christians die so well? <laughs> Let me put it another way. Do we live that well? In your work, something happens? Is your reaction one that, that here's what you can't do, you can't, Fake getting it right. <laughs> you can't. Everybody can see right through it. Oh, they're trying to maintain a good face, but they are freaking. <laughs> right? So what do you do? You become it. You really are it. And then when you react, because I'm, I'm telling you, your actions are important, but your reactions are always more important. Your reactions tell the tale. And when you are it, your reactions are ones that people look at and say, how'd they do that? And when your reactions are ones that count on and have in them a hope of God, a hope of something beyond this life, people see it and know it. That's a witness. 
Here's another one. When we suffer or judged or marginalized for simply being obedient to whatever God has led us to do, it proves to the world and to the heavenlies that God's judgments are just and true. He is right to do whatever he does. Here's what I mean by this. God does not have to justify his actions to you. <laughs> he is just and right and righteous in ways that you cannot imagine. And if you knew all the facts like he does, you would know that everything he does is magnificently good. Always. But he could do that, and you would never have any idea of what all was until afterwards. But here's what God does in mercy. He lets us see all the time how right he really is. Here's the problem with it. He uses your persecution to do it. <laughs> when you get killed for doing what? Were you insurrecting? Were you coming against the emperor? Were you hurting somebody? Were you stealing money from somebody? What were you doing? Why did these Christians get killed? Why did they get killed? What were they doing that merited death? Nothing. And when the world kills them, what God is saying is, the irony is, the people that judged the Christians were judging themselves. That's a witness. He's saying, I want you to see why the judgment that I take on the world is just. Look at how they act. Look at what they do. Do you see it? Now, I do want to say something, whatever God has led you to do. So let me just circle back around and say, you've got to be doing what God has led you to do. If you're out there, because, see, this is something we don't, we don't, at this point in time in America, we're not getting, you know, persecuted to death and losing our jobs for the most part because we're Christian and so on and everything like that. But here's what you are happening, what is happening. When you stand up for your faith, as God leads you, you are oftentimes judged in your workplace, with your friends, with your family, and on Facebook. Now, if you are out there spouting off what you think, so be it. If you are doing what God has told you to do and that happens, it's got a deeper purpose and meaning in it. It works to an effect that you have no idea of the depths of it, and we could keep going on to all these ways that God is having us testify. The sermon that I was going to preach, I'm going to do one minute on it, and I'm not going to go into any detail. Because as soon as I go into detail, that's going to take minds and it's going to take them somewhere else other than what we're trying to do here, which is give you awe. And what doesn't give people awe relief is politics. But remember something as Christians. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Love. What are the essentials? Jesus is God. We are sinners. God came to die for sinners. It doesn't go much further out than that. What are non-essentials? Gonna be really careful here. There's a lot of things that are important in politics. Let me say something very clearly. If you are not commentating on Facebook because you keep getting flamed, but God is telling you to do that, you are just as wrong as the person who's posting on Facebook and just doing it because they wanna do it. God may tell you to post and he may tell you not to post. What you're supposed to be doing is what he's telling you to do. That's when you become a witness. And it may go well for you and it may go poorly for you. But avoiding something because it goes poorly for you is not Christian. 
I want to tell you, in almost every area of politics at which people are in such disagreement right now, in almost every area, if we could just get to a place of calm and peace, we would find three things about the right and the left. In some degree, there is something of God in what they're saying. In some degree, there is something that is not of God in what they're saying. And in some degree, it's what they want to say because of the unique way that God made them in their planks. God made every one of us individually and differently, and you're reacting in a certain way. Where we get into trouble as Christians is, is when we make our planks essentials. When we start defining Christianity by our own preferences, by our own politics. That's where we get into trouble. Now, I'm not saying don't engage in politics. Watch my Facebook. I do. And I think it's important for us to because we're supposed to be salt and light. But here's what's important for us to do. It's always to only be led by the Lord, and it's always to only be led by the Lord, as 1 Corinthians says. If you are a clanging symbol, you are just a noise that irritates if you don't do it with love. Right? You can know all knowledge, and if you're not speaking it in love, then you're worthless. You're worse than worthless. You're actually negatively testifying to the Lord. Again, I could go into this in more detail. Maybe we will one day. I just wanted to say that because I want us to get to where we need to get to, and that is this. As was said earlier, let the Holy Spirit lead you. That's what Gene Curtin said. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in everything. When you're going to make a post, ask the Lord if you should do this, and then just do whatever he says. When you're talking to somebody, ask the Lord if you should say that. And when he prompts you to say something, just say it. Okay? The consequences are not what you're responsible for. Your obedience is. Having said that, let me keep going. In essence, God is putting the witness to this world of who he really is in our hands. How else are people going to come to know the Lord and who he really is? They can look at the creation and see him, but here's where they see him in much more dynamism, intimacy, and fullness. How we are when we say the words that he's prompted us to say and not say the words that he didn't, when we react in ways that are filled with hope and the fullness of God, it witnesses him. When we allow him to use us even in places of persecution, even in places of judgment and critique and, and where it's bad for us personally. You see it? The deepest, darkest, most difficult things we go through reveal how right God always is. <laughs> Somebody's going to say, that's not been my experience. I went through something that was really horrible, and I don't think God was right. I have an issue with him. Now, let me say something. Let's be charitable about that. If you've ever lost somebody in the ways that people lose people to some hideous disease that wastes them away, it is phenomenally difficult to keep in mind that God is doing something good or that something good is happening at all. Do you see it? But here's what I want to say. We may say it has not been my experience that that was a good thing. I think God did a bad thing there. I think he didn't do the right thing and I can be mad at him. But here's what I want to say to you. What does it mean to us now that no one in heaven ever says this? No one in heaven ever says, 
you didn't do the right thing, God. And it's not because they're afraid to. It's because we're going to be known as we are now known. And we're going to know everything. And when we know everything, we're going to look at what he did and we're going to go, oh my gosh, that's what you were doing? Oh man, that was phenomenal. Okay, got it. Thank you. <laughs> that's the story of Job. Here's the point. Don't worry. Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> God wants us to feel how incredibly good it feels right now and in heaven if we truly don't worry. Can you just feel it? When you quit worrying, can you just feel this thing that's been trying to press you down and kill you and entangle you and ensnare you? Can you just feel it? What it is to get free from that, to be set free from that which you are worried about. It frees you. But not just that, truly do trust. Can you, it just feels so good when you get into a place where you trusted God. And then everything turns out as it turns out and you go, wow, it was really great to have trusted God there. <laughs> and so truly do endure which is to hang tough. Stand on his goodness. Stand on his holiness. Stand on his wonderfulness. Even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. In fact, they'll even kill some of you. Who is it that's being killed? Who is it that's killing you? Just look at it right there. They. Who is who's the they? It's the broader they, but it includes your parents. <laughs> Oh, boy. Everyone, you everyone will hate you because you're my followers. This world is not his. He gave it to us. We gave it to Satan. He's redeeming it. But not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm endurance, you'll win your souls. What's another word for Endure. Trust. So I'm going to end it with this. On, what was it, Tuesday or Wednesday we did Daniel 7 in our soap? Anybody know? I think it, I want to say Wednesday. I can't remember though. But it was Tuesday or Wednesday we did Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 is Daniel in the lion's den. Where some people want to get rid of Daniel and so they say, they know he's going to continue worshiping God no matter what. And so what they do is they say, anybody who worships God has to be thrown in the lion's den. And you can't break your word they make clear that. You can't, you know, your word is God, is divine, so you can't come against your own word. And they're just trying to trap Daniel because they know he's not going to submit to it. So everybody else, you know, doesn't worship any other God. Daniel opens his window and prays to God. And so the king says, what can I do? He's, he's mortified by it. The king is upset. But he has to bind him and throw him into the lion's den. I was with somebody just this week, and I got permission to share this. And they said, I was in the shower. I just read that passage. I was in the shower and showering, and all of a sudden, God brought me into that situation and put me in that den with those lions. And suddenly, I realized something about that story. The lions didn't become kitty cats. The lions were still lions. They got their mouths shut so they couldn't eat him. But it didn't mean they, were, they weren't still scary, massive, claw-you-to-death lions. 
And, he, and the thing that he noted a couple of times, which I thought was just great, he said, can you imagine you're standing there and a lion, oh, they're all prowling about being kind of anxious and everything else, and one of them bumps into you. <laughs> what do you do at that point in time? Because I know what I do. I freak. <laughs> I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> you know? Right? Peter is in the middle of a storm. And they look up and they see Jesus walking on the wind and the waves. And Peter says, let me come out to you. And God, Jesus says, okay. And so he starts walking on the water and he's doing just great as long as he's looking at Jesus. But then at some moment he starts looking at the wind and the waves and what happens? It starts to sink. <laughs> it starts to drown. That's pictures that hang in my, in my um, bedroom. These were given to me by Julie's mom. And I like them very, very much because they remind me of something. And this doesn't quite capture what the person said in the shower, but you, you see there's a couple lines there that kind of, you know, how easy would it have been for Daniel to freak out? And here's the question, what would have happened if he had? The peace of God that passes all understanding. The peace of God that quiets the lions. Now, I'm not putting it on Daniel as to why he didn't get eaten, because that was clearly God. But I am putting it on Daniel to stay in the peace that God was providing. Right? And so I just want to leave us with this. Ultimately, what's the bigger ah sigh of relief? That everything in your life is going great, but you do know that you live in a fallen world and so you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop? Is that peace? That's that, that's that thing that's almost worse, isn't it? God, everything is going so great. What's going to happen next? <laughs> now, not everybody's personality is like that, but you get the point. But I just want to say, or is it coming to know the peace that passes understanding in the lion's den? Which one shows, reveals, witnesses who God is? And which one do you want to be? Not only because of the witness, but because, because when you found peace in the middle of the roughest storm, it tends to stay. When you've gone through that tribulation and you've learned the thing that God was trying to teach you in the test, you become a person of peace. And though the sky really is falling, you can still bring life and comfort. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, would you please take every single person in this body right now listening to this, and would you make us instruments of your peace? Would you make us those that witness to you? That's not the point, but it is the byproduct. But let's get to the point. God, would you make us those that can be in the middle of your presence, your goodness, no matter what happens. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table for me before my enemies where my cup runs over. My head is anointed with oil. God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, 
Just take a moment here. Take a moment, just enter into his peace. Take those things that have attached themselves to you, the worries, the fears. Get rid of them. Knock them off your shoulder. Clear them out of your head. Sweep them out of your heart. Replace them with the huge God who is so good. in front of you, would you, and grab these two cups. Lord, we take this bottom cup in which is the body broken for us. And what it is, is is that we have broken our lives because we, who have been given peace and comfort, have chosen instead fear. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we come to you right now and we say, We recognize how that broke us. So we put our finger in there and we break that up and we say, oh God. Oh Jesus, 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 Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking my brokenness, our brokenness, and putting it on that cross so that you could make us whole again in you take this body together saying thank you to Jesus for healing you. And now lift this cup in which is the life that he has for you. Hallelujah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Glorious larger than storms and lions' dens and all the trials and tribulation of a fallen world. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we take this saying, God, make my life this. Can I just say, I was I had a conversation with Willie's and we were talking about preaching and sermons and stuff like this. I didn't ask her permission, but I think I'm all right on this, right? Yeah. So, uh, and he said, he said, I don't want to come up with a sermon. I want to take a passage of scripture and I want to make it alive. We just took an incredibly difficult, unnerving on the surface initially passage of scripture and I hope we just brought it alive and showed God's goodness and his care and his comfort and that that's what he's always doing thank you Lord ushers could you come forward